The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning, Temple Bible Church. We are looking today uh, in John chapter 6, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I want to just remind you of what we've given in our updates, that we will meet 11 a.m. virtually through May, and then today, actually tonight, we are starting something that we'll do this evening at 7 p.m., and it'll be every Sunday evening in May at 7 p.m. We will meet outside in our east parking lot, which is just behind our main building between there and Creekside. And as we do that, you know, our government leaders are trusting us to do that well and in a way where we love one another and we are responsible. So we will practice strict social distancing. One of the ways that we have seen that we can do that is kind of by sitting in every other parking spot and we'll do that in chairs. We'll need you to bring your chairs or if you want to sit on blankets to do that, that'll be in our east parking lot. And and we'll respect one another and love one another well. Some of you may have masks that you'll want to bring, and that is fine as well. And some of you uh, will not be comfortable, whether uh, for a variety of reasons, in coming. And so we will have that service online also. It'll be about 45 minutes where we will worship together, pray together, and have a time of devotion. That's tonight and every Sunday night at 7 p.m. through the month of May. And we'll love our neighbors well as we do that. Was we're in this series called Teach Us to Pray, a couple of weeks ago, Tim Cartwright taught us on the difficulty, the desire, and the design of prayer. And then Dave, last week, Dave Tate walked us through the upward and outward and inward movements of prayer. And today, we're going to talk about prayer as war, maybe from a text that we wouldn't think about as a prayer text, but I think we need to go there this morning so prayer as an act of following Jesus really is an act of war. It's war against our own flesh. It's war against the world and worldliness. It's war against the rulers and authorities and the heavenly places, the spiritual forces of evil that would come against us and their poster boy, the accuser, Satan himself. We often fail to realize that. That's the case in John chapter 6. It's a a war really to believe who Jesus is. See, in, in John chapter 6, Jesus has fed 5,000 people, 5,000 families really through this miraculous thing. And then he and his disciples get in a boat and they go in this boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, about a half day walk, but maybe a two hour boat ride. And so they, they go to the Sea of Galilee, in the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum and the crowd follows them. And Jesus says to the crowd in, in John six twenty six, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, not because you've come to understand that I'm the Messiah, not because you realize this new thing that God is doing through me. You come because you ate your fill of the loaves. Your stomach was made full. Your appetite was satisfied. And as Jesus goes on to teach, he says some some things that are hard for people to understand. In verse 48 of John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me. See, we hear that and we look back and we know that Jesus was speaking about his blood that was poured out for us, his body that was broken for us. Perhaps the Jews should have understand because for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they had been taking in the Passover. They had seen the blood of the lamb save them and they had taken in the bread and they had taken in the wine as a reminder of the freedom that God gave them from slavery in Egypt and now he was giving them freedom from slavery to sin. Well, Jesus, as he said these things, they were hard to understand. And after this, verse 66 says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You hold the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the Holy One of God. He says, to whom shall we go? See, God says something in John chapter 6, God in the flesh, Jesus, that is hard for people to handle and hard for them to believe. The same thing happened in Genesis chapter 3. When God said something that was hard for Adam and Eve to believe, don't eat of the fruit of that one tree. And like all of us, they didn't trust God. In John chapter 6, it's the bread of life is me, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And see, Adam and Eve chose not to believe. Peter chose to believe in this moment. He said, To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You hold the words of eternal life. See, Peter had come to understand that here's the war. It's a war to believe. Here's this rough cut fisherman from Capernaum. And he had heard about this Messiah, but then he saw him. He saw. He saw when he knew the pain of coming home after a night of fishing and saying to his wife, I got no fish again. I'm not sure how we're eating this week. Some of you have come to experience the pain of coming home and saying, I've I've been furloughed. My workload has been cut to 50 or 60 or 80%. I'm not sure if I'm going to have a job next month. Peter knew what that was like, but then he had seen this rabbi fill his boat with fish after he had fished all night and not caught a thing. He knew the pain of a a sick mother-in-law that he could do nothing for. And he saw this new teacher come and heal his mother-in-law so well that she could feed this new band of followers so that they could be nourished to run after Jesus. And unlike the crowd who just came to get their fill, Peter said, to whom shall we go? You hold the words of eternal life. It was the exact opposite of what Adam and Eve had done. When they heard words they couldn't believe, they ran away and hid. See, but 
Peter didn't. And this, I really believe, is the, the battle that, that we know. He is, in effect, our ride or die. He's the only one we've got. We have no other hope. The scripture says we can receive nothing except that which is given to us from heaven. Apart from him, we can do nothing. He's the only God who can act on our behalf. There's none beside him. And so we have come to know. That's the battle. Have you come to know? Have we come to know? I think it's important that we see that Peter didn't say, I have come to know. Because prayer is war. It's something we do together. When Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 began to talk about the battle that we fight against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places... He used this terminology of these Roman soldiers, whether they were standing back to back battling so they had each side covered or whether they were standing arm in arm or side by side or all together. We've come to know you hold the words of eternal life. See, in Genesis chapter three, it's a different story. Adam and Eve, in fact, did eat of the tree. They didn't trust God. They trusted the serpent's words. And it says that, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. See, that's, that's what we do. That's what we do. That reminds me of children. All of us have had the blessing of having our, our children home more. We've been interacting more. But if you got lots of kids, one thing that you know as a parent is if the house gets quiet, something's wrong. <laughs> we've, we've experienced that at my house lots over the last 19 and a half years. And sometimes the house got really, really quiet. And maybe somebody had painted nail polish on themselves. Or sometimes the house got really, really quiet and something was broken. Or maybe somebody had used the bathroom on themselves or somewhere they just shouldn't have. But when you got a bunch of kids and that house gets quiet, you know something's wrong. Because we all tend to do the very thing we shouldn't do. When you've messed up, you know you run to mom or dad. Adam and Eve, when they messed up, they should have known we have fouled up life. We've got to run to the Father. But instead, they ran away. And then their son, Cain, killed his brother. And then generations began to happen. And, and then literally about 234, 235 years later, they've had another son named Seth. And then he has a son called Enosh. And and Genesis 4, 26 says that to Seth was born a son. He called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. See, that very act of calling on the name of God is an act of war against the fall. It's an act of war against believing in ourselves. It's an act of war against trusting that we have got this. See, what I'm going to submit to you today is that while there are other aspects and nuanced ways that make prayer war, prayer itself, calling on the name of the Lord, that's the war. Adam and Eve, they've messed up, they're worried. They've mistaken two things. Number one, 
Number one, they think that they have to get this under control, so they're going to hide and they make fig leaves for themselves. And number two, they think they can get this under control. And both of those are mistaken thoughts. See, when we worry, when we worry, we're really kind of praying to ourselves. We think we have to get it under control. We think we can get it under control. And we begin to worry, how can I do this? We begin to make our own plans instead of crying out to God. Matt Smether says this, worry is what happens when you pray to yourselves. That's not what Peter does in John 6. He says, to whom else shall we go? It's a hard saying, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. They don't understand what he means. But Peter says, we've come to believe that you're the Holy One of God. We have got nobody else. So I'm going to tell you today that this battle is twofold. The battle is twofold. First, it's knowing that you and I have no one else to go to. And second, it's that we understand that the primary reason we go to him is intimacy over appetite. It's intimacy over appetite. We're not coming just to have our stomach filled. We're coming to be with him. There's a psalm that prays like a weaned child. We come to you like a weaned child comes to its mother. So we come to you. See, a weaned child doesn't come to his mom for milk. He comes for intimacy. So first, we'll talk about calling on him. And then second, we'll talk about calling on him, not just to satisfy our own appetites. When we call on Jesus, it does three things. It does three things. Number one, when we pray to Jesus, we magnify God's character. We magnify God's character. Number two, we magnify his ability. And number three, we magnify our neediness. Now, what do we mean when we say magnify? Because magnify can mean one of two things. It can mean that you make something look bigger than it is. So I've got these readers on, but they're not quite good enough. When I get a splinter in my finger, I can't see to cut it out. So if I just take my knife out and start to take that splinter out, I'm going to get really bloody. But I get a magnifying glass and I magnify the splinter. I make it look bigger than it is. And it, it, it always hurts, right? So it feels big, but it doesn't look big. And I, and I take the splinter out. That is not the magnification that we are talking about when we talk about magnifying our neediness and magnifying God's ability and magnifying God's character. No, the magnification we are talking about is the sort of magnification a telescope does. When I was 11 years old, someone in my family gave me a telescope. I lived out in the country. The, sky, the stars were so beautiful and bright at night. And I remember for the first time looking down in that telescope at the moon. And I had seen it out there and I knew it was kind of big. But then through that telescope, I could see there are craters there are hills. My goodness, if somebody wanted to, they could get a rocket and land on that thing. I mean, I'm sure we never will, but someone could if they wanted to. I was amazed. See, that's the kind of magnification that prayer does when we cry out to God and we magnify his need, our needs, his ability, and his character. We just begin to see that they're way bigger than our eyes understand. We help to see these things a bit closer to their actual size. And as we do that, there are three enemies. There are three enemies that keep us from calling on him in the war of prayer. And the first enemy that keeps us from calling on him is our flesh. Our flesh, prayer is war against hoping and pragmatism. 
Prayer is war against hoping and pragmatism. Now, if you're one of the most pragmatic people at Temple Bible Church, you probably do not like this. I've even heard people say prayer is not a plan. Well, see, it is when you realize you got no other options. It is when you realize Jesus is your only hope. And it doesn't mean that we don't have things to do. But see, when we pray, it reminds our flesh, you don't got this. I remember in 2013, I'd had shoulder surgery the year before. I couldn't really do any other working out than running. And I decided I would start running. And I just got to tell you, I hate running. I'm slow, I'm fat, you start running, you get out of breath, it's just miserable. So I got this app on my phone to help me run. And I would get about to the point in my run where I just wanted to lay down and quit, stop, turn around, walk home, and this this lady's voice would go, you got this. And I would look down at my phone and go, no I don't. You got this, keep running. And see, prayer is is a reminder to our flesh, we don't got this. Our flesh is an enemy that will wage war against us when we go to pray. The second thing is the world. The world wages war against us when we go to pray. By the world, I do not mean the people who live around you and me all over our city and in other cities. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. By the world, I mean anything that is against the will of God that would trick us into thinking that we don't need him, to trick us into thinking that we have to solve the greatest problems of life, trick us into thinking that we can solve the greatest problems that we face. Anything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, false arguments, spiritual forces of evil, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that control the things of the world. And then the third enemy is, of course, their poster boy, Satan, the accuser of our souls that says, don't believe him. And then when we don't believe, says, run and hide from him, cover yourself with fig leaves instead of the righteousness of Jesus. See, those are enemies that wage war against us and keep us from praying. They keep us from praying. But see, when we call on him, we do three things. The first thing we do is that we magnify God's character. We magnify God's character. When we magnify God's character, what we're saying is that he is loving that he is loving when Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of God's glory, he's got these glorious riches, and here's what his character is that he does with these riches, that he would grant you, he's so kind that he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith so that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. See, when we pray, When we cry out to God, what we're saying is, I know that you love me. Whether we're doing that in confession of our our sin, God, I know that you love me, so I want to confess this to you. Whether we're doing that in thankfulness, God, I can see your hand of goodness on my life. I can see you caring for me even in the midst of this. I can see you caring for us. We're magnifying his character. When we praise him for his goodness to us, we're magnifying 
this fact that we believe that he's loving and then we're praying for us or when we're praying for others, we're magnifying this is a loving God that I can cry out to. See, I stopped to thank God today because I was getting in my car to come and speak to you through this camera and onto your screen about prayer as an act of war. And as I was getting in my car, I heard my name, Chase. And there are two TBCers riding by my house on bicycles. Jimmy and Barb were there and Jimmy goes, hey man, are you going to preach? I said, I am. He said, man, let me just stop and pray for you. I just thought, what an amazing moment. What an amazing moment that Jimmy's going to stop and pray for me. In this moment, all the more, I had this opportunity to see God was looking out for me today when I didn't even realize it. And so when we pray, we magnify his character. We understand it a bit more in line with what it actually is. And then second, when we pray, when we pray, we magnify his power, his ability. Isaiah 64, three through four says, when you came down, when you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence for from old, no one has seen or heard or perceived by the ear. There's not an eye who has seen a God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for you. See, Paul when he's talking to the Ephesians, he says, I want you to understand the length and breadth and width and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And we're praying to one who can do far more, he says. He can do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. See, when we pray, we magnify God's ability. We magnify his character. And then we magnify our neediness. We magnify our neediness. So we are not praying like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who says, God, thank you that I'm not like these people. Thank you that I'm not like these people. We're magnifying our neediness. God, we need you. You're our only hope. That's what Peter says. There's nobody else for us to go to. You hold the words of eternal life. You hold the words of eternal life, and we've come to know that you're the Holy One of Israel. Some of you today, you wonder. You wonder, does he really hold the words of eternal life? Can he really meet the deepest needs? And you won't know unless you cry out to him. And that's the war of belief. That's a war of belief. So prayer, the war is number one, that we're crying out to him. And number two, it's a recognition that we're calling on him to do more than satisfy our appetites. See, Psalm 62, 11 and 12 says, there are two things that I've come to know. Number one, that God is strong. And number two, that he is loving that he is loving. So prayer is not with many words. Jesus said, when you pray, don't pray. Like the Pharisees, they love to be seen. They're using many words. Don't pray like the Gentiles in just this repetitive way. And then there's this story that he tells. He told this parable, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed, thus God... I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So he's reminding God why he deserves blessing when we know prayer is an act of war, is have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes, but beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, it's this man who went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, prayer that exalts ourself isn't really prayer to God. It's just a declaration of how good and deserving we are. So it's not with many words. It's not making much of ourselves. It's not putting down others. It's not a rabbit's foot to satisfy our appetites. See, prayer as an act of war is this crying out for mercy. This prayer is surrounded by two other, other parables on prayer. And the first is, is one of a widow who just kept knocking and who kept coming, who kept asking. The next one is about children coming to Jesus. And he said, let them come to me. And then there's a the story of a rich young ruler who came to Jesus but walked away sad because he was a man of many possessions and he trusted in them rather than in Jesus. So to the degree that you don't come persistently, to the degree that you think God's job is to make much of you, and to the degree that you do not recognize coming to Jesus is costly, then you may walk away sorely disappointed, but the war is a war to believe. So what's the application as we think about prayer as war? The application as we think about prayer as war is that he's all we got. He's all we got that we are saying to him, to whom else shall we go? What are some of the things that we say to other than Jesus? You're all I got. See, 22 years ago in the spring of 1998, I walked in the gym at First Baptist Church, Bridge City, and I saw a good looking girl in a black dress that hit right above the knee. And when I saw her, I said, I have found my lily in the valley. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God to thee, how great thou art. I thought, I'm going to marry this girl. And so by God's grace, I did. But here's the problem. You've got this beautiful girl. And then you've got this guy whose ego is a bit bigger than his arms. And we get married. And there were times early in our marriage when I would look to Laura to satisfy the deepest needs of my soul and she would look to me to satisfy the deepest needs of her soul. And if you know me at all, you know that's not going to work well because I am just an utter failure and a complete mess. See, today you might be looking to your husband or your wife to satisfy the deepest needs of your soul. And while they are intended to be a blessing to you, they can't do that. Only Jesus can. He's the only one. It might be a job. If I could just get this job or I had this job and I find my identity in this job and it's really all I got. And if I lose this job, I just don't know what I'll do. To whom shall we go? Maybe it's the amount of money you have. Maybe it's a celebrity that you really trust in their words. Maybe it's a political leader. And we need to be reminded today, there is only one Messiah. That's true today. That'll be true in November. That'll be true after November. To whom else shall we go? See, when we look to people or things, when we look to ourselves, which I think is what we most often do, we end up running and hiding 
We make these makeshift fig leaves and they just don't cover up the nakedness of our sinfulness. They don't cover up how barren we are without Him. They don't cover up that we can't even satisfy our own appetites, much less the deepest needs that we have. The application is to understand that you got nobody else and I've got nobody else and together we call on Him. So what is prayer is war that makes much of him and makes little of my ego and my appetites, your ego and your appetites. It's this act of humility through which God brings about the transformation of his people. It's this act of intimacy through which we are shaped and conformed in the image of Christ, which he promised to do for all who trust in him. Yes, sometimes it's this alteration of circumstance and we've seen God do amazing things throughout scripture and history in our own lives to alter our circumstances because nothing is too difficult for him. But we're not coming to have our appetites satisfied. We're coming to be with him and to be transformed by him and oh, how we need to be transformed. See, at the end of Isaiah, God begins to describe himself to the prophet Isaiah. And here's what he says. In Isaiah 66, 1, he says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is this house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The whole world belongs to him. He founded it upon the waters. He established it upon the sea. But he says then in verse 2, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. See, humility and contrition are things that we do not love, and they don't come naturally to us. But here's the one to whom I look. Here's the one who is going to be in the war. Here are the people who are going to win the war, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble. And my word, this recognition, my humility is this recognition, your humility is this recognition that we are needy and that God is the one and only need meter and way maker that we have. It's an understanding of prayer's purpose that I want to come to him because he's loving and he's strong because of his character and his ability. And then prayer, when we do that, when we come to him and we set our mind's attention and our heart's affection on him because of who he is, what he's done what he's able to do, then prayer is not just an act of war, it's an act of worship. And church, that's what we were made for. We were made for that. See, there's an Indian pastor and theologian named Anand Mahavadan, and some of us got to hear Anand, just such a privilege back in the fall at the Right Now conference, and he began to talk about this Hebrew word for contrite or contrition, and it means literally to be ground to pieces or to be crushed. Here's the one to whom I look. 
who'll be ground into pieces, who'll be crushed because of our sinfulness, because of our iniquity, because of our transgression. We're contrite, we're humble before this God who can save and this God who can transform. Well, we don't like the idea of being crushed. Let's see, Isaiah 53 uses this the same root when it says that he was crushed for our iniquity. He was pierced for our transgression. His back was ground into pieces. And this is the one to whom we look. That's the one to whom Peter said, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we've come to believe that you are the Holy One. We've come to know. So we're praying to one while we wait. See, we're not going to be in a garden one day like Adam and Eve where we're going to be in a city called New Jerusalem. And we will forever be his people and he will forever be our God and we will never be cast out and we will not be clothed in the ragged cloths of our own making, but we'll be clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. So we say to him today, Jesus, in the middle of this pandemic and then when this pandemic is over, we don't don't just need you May 2nd, 2020. We needed you and we had nobody else to go to May 2nd, 2019. And May 2nd, 2021, you will be the only one we've got. And it will be war for us to believe it. So God, today we say, to whom else shall we go? We've come to believe that Jesus is the Holy One. He's risen from the dead. We've come to know that he is your son. So help our unbelief as we rage on in this war called prayer to a God who can save. Oh God, we need you. We need you in the midst of this storm and we'll need you when this storm is over. So we ask in Jesus' name that you would hear us. Amen.